I wonder if you know the name Joseph Hart. If you don't know his name, I hope you know his hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. I've quoted it often, and I'll quote it once more. Um, Hart's hymn is wonderfully tender. Consider these words. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. These words are tender, and they're all the more striking when they're set against the backdrop of Joseph Hart's life. Hart was raised in a Christian home. His parents attended the preaching of a famous preacher, George Whitfield. But while Joseph himself professed faith in Christ, his, his life had followed a tumultuous path. At age 21, he attempted to be serious with the Lord, but often found himself sinfully given to the lust of the flesh. This is what he wrote about his own life during a period of wandering. He wrote, In this abominable state, I continued a loose backslider, an audacious apostate, a bold-faced rebel for nine or ten years. Have you ever described your life like that? You're wandering like that, abominable, loose, audacious, bold-faced rebel. At, at one point during his wandering, he, he actually wrote a tract denouncing Christianity entitled The Unreasonableness of Religion. Joseph Hart wandered away from the Lord. He needed to repent and return to the Lord. And in time and by God's grace, he did. He wrote a short work on his, his Christian experience. And these words come from his conclusion. Reflecting on his life, he writes, God hath plucked me from the lowest hell. He hath plucked me as a brand out of the fire. He hath proved himself stronger than I. Praise the Lord, he proves himself stronger than us. He proved himself stronger than I and his goodness superior to all my unworthiness. Though an enemy, he calls me his friend. Though a traitor, a child. Though a beggared prodigal, he clothes me with the best robe. And has put a ring of endless love and mercy on my hand. And though I am sorely distressed by spiritual and internal foes, afflicted and tormented and bowed down almost to death, with a sense of my own present barrenness, ingratitude, and proneness to evil, he secretly shows me his bleeding wounds and softly and powerfully whispers to my soul, I am thy great salvation. This is the God that Joseph Hart returns to. The God who rescues sinners from hell and redeems them to himself. The God who makes enemies his friends, traitors his children, and the afflicted the aim of his affections. This is the God that Joseph Hart wandered away from but returns to. What about you? Have you returned to this good and gracious God. These last several weeks through the book of Hosea, we've been thinking about reality that in varying degrees and from time to time, we've all wandered away from the Lord. We've also been thinking about our need to return to Him. And as we continue to open this portion of God's Word together, we need to keep God's tender mercies, His overcoming mercies in view. In Hosea, our God warns us of the dangers of our wandering, and he invites us to return to him. And as we read and reflect on Hosea chapter 12 together, I pray that we would hear God's warnings about Israel's wanderings, take them to heart, 
and return to him. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to open your Bibles and turn to Hosea chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 2. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 758. As you'll recall from our our study, this series in the book of Hosea, Hosea was an 8th century prophet of God. He was called to proclaim uh, God's warnings of judgment and his invitations of mercy to the northern kingdom of Israel just before their fall in 722 B.C. Hosea was somewhat unique as a prophet in that God called him to marry a woman named Gomer. It would turn out that she would be unfaithful to him. And and yet, Hosea was called by God to go and pursue her. And in this way, he was called to explain and exemplify the pursuing love of God to a wayward people. Hosea's relationship with Gomer is mostly taken up in the first three chapters of the book, Hosea chapters 1 to 3. And then in the remaining chapters, chapters 14 to, sorry, 4 to 14, we're given something of a compilation of Hosea's prophetic and preaching ministry throughout the course of his life. And that's what we're studying now in this season. In these chapters, Hosea, he stands as a covenant advocate for God. He prosecutes God's case against Israel. And in fact, the word indictment will even turn up in our text this morning. So he he prosecutes God's case against Israel. And yet at the same time, he calls, he makes God's plea for Israel to return to a faithful uh, relationship to the Lord. Last week, we studied Hosea chapter 11. We heard the Lord call his people to return to him as the Lord of love. He explained to us that the Lord loves his disobedient children. And that in love, the Lord disciplines his disobedient children. And he also told us that what God wants is faithful love. God delights in faithful love. And that's what he's calling God's people to. And that message really continues on in Hosea chapter 12 as well. This this morning, as we turn to consider... Hosea 12, the plea for Israel to return continues. But this time, a a sharp edge is really put on this plea. And it goes something like this. Return to the Lord or be repaid. That's kind of the message of Hosea chapter 12. It's a stark and startling message. If If you wanted to summarize the thrust of Hosea chapter 12 in a single sentence, I think that might be it. Return or be repaid. And I want to show you this from the text itself. I want to show you kind of the the skeletal structure of the text. Take a look at verse 2. Read Hosea chapter 12, verse 2. Follow along as I read. The Lord Yahweh has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. God will repay his people according to his to their deeds. In the Hebrew, the the same root word for repay, it turns up twice more in our text. In verse 6, it's translated return. So skip down to Hosea chapter 12, verse 6, and notice the plea from the prophet. Hosea 12, 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Again, that word for return has the same root word in the Hebrew we saw in verse 2 translated repay. But the final time this uh, word turns up is in the last verse of our text, verse 14. Skip down to uh, verse 14. This is basically the conclusion of the matter. Here's Hosea 12, 14. Look for the word repay. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him For his disgraceful deeds. 
See, Hosea's warning, it's, it's ominous. Verses 2 and 14, they're kind of the top and tail, the beginning and the end of our text. They tell us that disgraceful deeds will be repaid. And the idea that blood guilt will remain on him is that a judgment, a sentence is being passed. And yet, in the middle, in verse 6, the Lord God holds out an invitation saying, Return, come back to me, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for God. Verses 2, 6, and 14 are, if you will, I think that the skeletal structure of the text, they're the spine along which the message of the text runs, return or be repaid. And yet, Hosea, he puts flesh to these bones by looking to Israel's past. Through the life of the patriarch Jacob, Hosea tells us that there's a way to return to the Lord, to turn away from disgraceful deeds, while also warning us, warning Israel, that they will be repaid like Jacob for his disgraceful deeds. So Jacob, he does double duty in our texts. It's as if Hosea says, you are nothing like Jacob. You're not faithful like him. And then he'll also say, you are just like Jacob. You're deceitful like him. So if you're, you're following along, you're taking notes, there are two points. The outline will form the rest of the sermon. Return from disgraceful deeds. So number one, return from disgraceful deeds. And number two, repayment for disgraceful deeds. And if that outline startles you, I just remind you of what I think is the, the message that we've already seen from verses 2, 6, and 14. Return to the Lord or be repaid. As, as we come to unpack this, we need to know that our God stands ready to receive us. Right? There is an invitation in our text to return to Him. We need to keep that in view and answer it. We need to examine ourselves and ask, have I come to Him? Have I returned to Him like He is asking of me? And then seeing that our God has provided a way for our rescue from sin and death, we should return to Him. That should be our response to this text. Let's begin where our hearts should end with our first point, return from disgraceful deeds. Follow along as I read verses 2 through 6 now. Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 through 6. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord Yahweh, the God of hosts, the Lord Yahweh is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, Return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. The problem that these verses present is clear, isn't it? There are disgraceful deeds that need to be punished, verse 2. And yet the solution to the problem is equally clear there in verse 6. Yahweh wants His people to return, to hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for him. Last week we put it in these words, God delights in faithful love. Toward the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, we saw how Hosea sought to prod the northern kingdom of Israel on to faithfulness, to faithful love by saying, Judah, the southern kingdom, walks with God. A number of you have pointed out there's some translation issues going on there. I'd be happy to talk to you about that 
uh, later. But I, I think that's an accurate and faithful translation of what's being communicated here. And Hosea is saying, take a look at the southern kingdom. They're walking with God and you should do the same. In other words, you're nothing like Judah. They're walking with God. And yet, we're told here in verse 2 that there is an indictment against Judah. Judah is not sinless. Though they walk with God, there is sin that's growing up in their hearts and lives. And soon, and very soon, the Lord Yahweh is going to carry out His judgments upon them. In the course of history, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria in 722 BC for their idolatry and sin. Judah is about 135 years behind uh, the, the northern kingdom, and they fall in 586-587 BC for their idolatry and sin. So though at this point in time, uh, Judah is not yet at the same place where Israel is, they're, they're getting on the road, and their, their iniquities and sins are beginning to grow that Yahweh also has an indictment against them. And in time, they will face his judgment and punishment. And so Jacob emerges here in this scene. Jacob is a, a patriarch. He is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he stands as a representative of the people as a whole. They all descended from him. Jacob is the perfect person to personify the people of Israel for that very reason. They all descend from him. Jacob's the common ancestor. And yet he's also the perfect person to personify the people as a whole because from the beginning, he was one who sought to grasp what did not belong to him. He was a deceiver and one who struggled with God. Much of Jacob's history is actually, actually succinctly summarized there in verses 3, 4, and 5. When Hosea says that in the womb he, he took his brother by the heel, he's reminding us of the account of Jacob's birth in Genesis chapter 25, verse 26, as you may know, the firstborn son, he would receive the inheritance of the father. Jacob was the secondborn son, clinging to the heel of the firstborn son at his birth, showing us that he was after his brother's inheritance. From the beginning, he was trying to take hold of his older brother's inheritance. And through deceit, he eventually got what he sought. But it only led to him living in fear of his older brother Esau. He even ran from him, fearing his wrath. And in fact, at one point, his fear of Esau ran him right into a wrestling match with God. That's why Hosea mentions that in his manhood, he strove with God. Here we're told the uh, remarkable story of this ultimate fighting championship in, in Genesis 32. There we learn that the, the match lasted all night long until finally the angel of the Lord put Jacob's hip out of joint and Jacob refused to let the angel of the Lord go until he blessed him. And Hosea, he supplies us with a detail that's not found in Genesis. Hosea tells us that Jacob wept. And this is striking, and perhaps this shows us how Jacob prevailed. He prevailed not in strength, but in weakness and weeping. Right? A, a hip out of joint and eyes full of tears is not a picture of triumph. Unless, of course... Jacob was being moved from deceit to dependence upon God. Israel could learn a lesson from Jacob. Sometimes the only way of getting help is to hold on to God. And perhaps God, by His grace, was moving Jacob from a place of striving against God to walking stride by stride with God. 
This seems to be the aim, actually, of verse 4, by telling us about Bethel. In Genesis 35, we're told once more that God appeared to Jacob. This episode, it it begins in Genesis 35 with Jacob announcing that he's going to make an altar for God. The God who answers him when he's in distress. Jacob has moved from deceit to honestly proclaiming his need for God. His dependence upon God, his need to cry out to God. And it is in this moment of humility before Yahweh that God blesses and renames Jacob. In Genesis 35, verse 10, Yahweh says, No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. There, God reassures Jacob that the promises that he made to Abraham and to Isaac would be carried on through his line. This is Genesis 35, verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The history of Jacob should have been wonderfully encouraging to the people of Israel and to us. God can take deceivers and make them men and women who are dependent upon him. God can take those who are greedy, those who are grasping for gain, and make them those who give of themselves for the glory of God. Jacob shows Israel their past and the path back to God. Jacob patriarch, he is an honest look in the mirror. Israel is a nation full of deceit, as Jacob was in his youth and early life. But by God's grace, God's people can be like Jacob in his latter days. Instead of grabbing hold of other nations and depending upon them, asking for their protection against various military forces in the world, Israel ought to grab hold and hold on to the Lord. Instead of striving against God when they suffer discipline, they should weep over their sins and seek His favor and blessing. Why? Verse 5 tells us. Do you see verse 5 there? The Lord Yahweh, the God of hosts, the Lord is His memorial name. He's the Lord. He's Yahweh, the God of covenant faithfulness. He has always been faithful And he will be until the end. He's the God of hosts. He is the God who possesses an army of angels at his disposal. He is almighty. No one can stop his power and strength. All of creation is at his beck and call. And he will stop at nothing to carry forth his will. He is the God whose name will be remembered for all time. He is the God whose name will be praised by his people for all time. This is not a God you fight. This is a God you fear. This is not a God you resist, but a God you return to. This is not a God you hold at arm's length, but you hold close, like Jacob did in his wrestling with God. And Hosea, he gets real personal and real pushy in his message there in verse 6. Notice that he says, so you. And in the Hebrew, this is emphatic. And if this were written in social media days, this would be in all caps. So you, Israel, he's verbally sticking his finger in the chest of his hearers. You as a nation and you as individual Israelites, you need to return to the Lord. You need to hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for God. Hosea wants the people of Israel to return away from idolatry and alliances with foreign nations. He wants them to return in heart to the Lord, holding fast to Him instead of holding on to these idols. Hosea wants Israel to hold fast as Jacob did. Turn away 
from their injustice and the oppression of their neighbor, that's always the fruit of sinful selfishness. And Hosea wants them to wait continually upon the Lord in faith. And as we think about this text and its relationship to our own lives, we need to let Hosea verbally stick his finger in our chests. This is God's word to the ancient people of God, but this is also God's word for us today. He spoke this to Israel, but this is God's word to you. Have you been wandering like Jacob and Israel? Have you been afraid and on the run? Have you been deceiving? Have you been pretending to be devoted to God? Have you been trying to get ahead in your own strength like Jacob? Hear the call of Hosea chapter 12 verse 6 and return to the Lord. And don't you love it that the Lord is straightforward with us? He, he tells us what he wants from us. He wants us to come to him, to return to him, and he makes it abundantly clear. He wants you to come to him and to come to him now. And you might think, but I, I am a mess. And you probably are. And Jacob was too. And so were the people of Israel. And this is who God is calling to come to him. This is who God wants to come to him. And he wants you to come to him. As Joseph Hart put it in his hymn, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requires is for you to feel your need of him. And we see our need right there in verse 6. We return to him by his help and only by his help. Hear his call to return and heed his call to return. We've heard Yahweh's call for Israel to return from disgraceful deeds. And now we hear Yahweh caution Israel that there will be repayment for disgraceful deeds. This is our, our second point. Repayment for disgraceful deeds. Follow along now as I read Hosea chapter 12, verses 7 to 14. Hosea 12, 7 to 14. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I and the Lord Yahweh your God from the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord Yahweh brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Though these verses, they follow something of a winding course, though they follow this winding course, their, their meaning, I think, is clear. Israel, here called Ephraim, remember Ephraim was one of the larger tribes in the 12 tribes of Israel, so Hosea and other minor prophets from time to time will use that larger tribe to kind of stand in place for the whole. So when Hosea's mentioning Ephraim, he's specifically addressing the northern kingdom. So Ephraim has been deceitful, 
and is self-deceived. We see that in verse 7. And they will be repaid for their disgraceful deeds. That's what we see in verse 14. Verses 7 and 8, they basically tell us that Israel is a chip off the old block. They, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. They're just like their father, Jacob. He is a deceiver and they are deceivers. Like father, like son. Jacob was a deceiver and Israel is like a deceitful merchant who's using false balances. In fact, that word um, merchant can also be translated a cunning Canaanite. And it's not clear whether or not Hosea wants to not only communicate that Israel is a, a wicked merchant, but that they're just like the nations as well in their deceit and deceitfulness. Hosea says they, they use scales that are falsely weighted to their advantage. And so they rob their neighbor in the marketplace. They're deceivers, and yet they're also self-deceived. You see that in verse 8? It's, it's frightening. It's almost the, uh, the perfect Old Testament expression of what we read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. The Apostle John writes, If we say we have no sin, that's what Israel says, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Israel's looking at their own material prosperity, and they're thinking to themselves, God, God can't possibly be displeased with us. We're, we're wealthy. Often in the ancient world, people tied wealth to God's favor and pleasure. But that's not always the case. Wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's favor and pleasure. They're also saying something to the effect of is, in all of our dealings, we, we've been perfectly just too. But that's clearly not true. They were self-deceived in saying they were innocent in how they acquired their wealth. This is a false claim, for they used false scales. This was the command of God in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 36. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, Israel was found, they found their wealth by robbing their neighbor. And as much as they protest, iniquity, sin, and deceit can certainly be found in their dealings. It's striking that when you come to the New Testament, Jesus uses the phrase, the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. As though riches can deceive. Because they can, can't they? They can de deceive us into thinking that we're safe with God. And they can deceive us into thinking that we're safe in this world. That we, we have enough wealth that we can stave off any ill or any bad that might happen to us. But then we're trusting in our wealth and not in the God who gave it to us. Riches can deceive us by making us think that we need more. And that we should do whatever it takes to get more. That we aren't we here in this congregation are typically going to the marketplace and using actual physical scales, making payments by scales. We should be careful about our, our bargaining when we're seeking um, some object. In our financial dealings, we must be on guard against any temptation to take advantage of another person and their, their goodwill. We must be on guard against deception, deception uh, overstating the condition of some object that we're perhaps trying to sell. For example, I remember a, a Craigslist ad about a futon one time. Um, this ad did not hide the condition of uh, this piece of furniture. The ad, it said something like, so I'm going to mess it up, but it said something like, if you, if you want your mother-in-law to come and stay for three nights, but not three weeks, then this is the futon for you. Uh, and and I, I know firsthand that that was an honest, uh, there's honest truth about that futon. Uh, we, we must be truthful in our, in our financial dealings, but in all other areas as well. 
And at the end of the day, if we're, if we're given to the lion, lying, then we're not given to the Lord. As one believer put it bluntly, quote, Those who consistently lie with their tongues and cheat others with their hands are people who do not love God. If we love our God, then we will love the truth. Children, youth, young adults, be mindful of your relationship with the truth. Don't say something just to please others when you, you don't really mean it. When your parents ask you if you finished your homework, if you've brushed your teeth, if you've cleaned your room or made your bed, then tell them the truth. Uh, consider that more is at stake than discipline from your parents. Consider that telling them lies, it, it harms your relationship with them and your relationship with the God of truth. Moreover, when, when we lie, we bring ourselves into partnership with the one who the Bible calls the father of lies, the one who first deceived Adam and Eve. We, we don't want to be on his team. We want to be on the team of the Lord Jesus, who is the truth himself. Children, youth, your parents love you, and you should tell them the truth. Uh, you should tell them what you do with your friends. You should tell them where you're going. And, and parents, I want to encourage you to thank your children when they tell you the truth in a, in a hard moment. While it's their duty before God to always tell the truth, it's also difficult. And, and we want to encourage truth-telling, even when there is a, a cost and consequence to it. And, and children, you should know that when you tell the truth, there may be a cost and consequence to it. And yet I promise you that this cost, the, the cost and consequence of not telling the truth is higher. And young people, you should be careful to be truthful with your peers. Uh, you will be tempted to lie, perhaps about your athletic accomplishments, perhaps about the adventures you've gone on, um, perhaps about the size of the fish you've caught. Uh, you'll be tempted to lie in a whole host of ways. But be honest and truthful with your friends as well. Lies, they, they tend to beget more lies. And because our God is a God of truth, He also tends to bring dark deceit into the light. The scriptures tell us that the heart is deceitful. And that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we are to be those who, who speak the truth in love, then we must be those who love the truth as we speak. But we must especially love the one who declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. It's only as we cling and hold on to the Lord Jesus that we can have the strength and courage by his grace to tell the truth, even in difficult circumstances. Remember, Israel... Deceiving others can lead to self-deception, right? Their use of those false scales led them to eventually saying, I'm honest in all of my dealings. Deceiving others can lead to self-deception. Well, in response to Israel's deception of others and self-deception, Yahweh reminds the nation of who he is and what he has done and what he will do. In short, he will send them into exile. In different ways, verses 9 to 14, they communicate uh, this repayment for Israel's deceitful dealings with God. They'll be sent into exile. The, verse, the first part of verse 9 there, it echoes the, the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord Yahweh your God from the land of Egypt. And this is a powerful reminder of God's saving grace toward His people. Right? He saved them and rescued them from slavery. And the latter half of verse 9, it also reminds 
Israel of God's sustaining grace there in the wilderness. And it also includes a promise for Israel's future. You see there, they will be made to dwell in tents as in the days of old. In other words, they will be pulled out of their land and homes and made to live in a place that's not their own. God pulled his people out of a place in the past, right? He, he pulled them out of Egypt, and he can do it again in the present too. In fact, he will. He will pull them out of Canaan, just like he pulled Adam and Eve out of the garden. He'll pull them out of Canaan. He will send them into exile. And verse 10 reminds us that the Lord has warned his people about this through his prophets before. Over and over and over again. He told them the truth by the mouth of the prophet Moses that this would happen. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses promised that Israel would be uprooted and taken out of their land for disobedience and sin. And in subsequent history, God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet who told them that what Moses said was true and will happen. He multiplied his prophets to tell them, but they would not listen. It was so kind of God to be patient with them time and time again, saying, come, come back. You're wandering, come back. And yet... What is he to do with a people who will not listen? He will repay them. As we think about our own lives and listening to God's word, we should remember what we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God has spoken to us in and by His Son. He has sent apostles and prophets to testify to Christ. He has provided us with parents and teachers and preachers who have told us about the salvation that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. He has provided us with the Scriptures. Just as God petitioned Israel over and over and over again, so He has petitioned us to hear His Word. What are we doing with this Word that God has spoken to us? Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews goes on to say that we should do with God's word in Jesus Christ. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's what happened with Israel. They did not pay close attention to the word that their God spoke to them. And so they drifted away from it, lest we drift away from it. This is an application in New Testament believers. We must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. In other words, that message of the Old Testament. Since it proved to be reliable and God kept his word and he put his people out of the land. Since that message proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, a repayment. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And that question still stands. Will we hear and heed God's word? Will we receive it, believe it, and obey it? And as the writer of the Hebrews asks, can we expect to escape retribution? Can we expect to escape repayment from God if the Old Testament people of God did not? Hosea has told us that Israel is deceitful and self-deceived there in verses 7 and 8. He's told us that Yahweh sent prophets to urge Israel to return or be repaid through exile, verses 9 and 10. And in verse 11, we're told about two cities. These two cities, they stand as, as representative, Gilgal and Gilead. They're, they're representative of the whole northern kingdom. Gilgal is in the 
uh, sorry, Gilead is in the north and Gilgal is in the south. They stand for the whole. And verse 11, it opens conditionally. Do you see that? If there is iniquity, and the effect is basically, then they'll be brought to nothing. If? I mean, we've, we've been reading Hosea, haven't we? Of course there's iniquity. There's all kinds of iniquity in Israel. There's iniquity from top to bottom. And the promise of verse 11 then is that the kingdom of Israel, they'll be made desolate. They will be destroyed. The altars that they use for half-hearted worship to the living God will be destroyed. The altars that they use for hedonistic worship to the false gods, they will be thrown down. They won't be able to be used. Moreover, when these massive stones are cast about in a field, it can't properly be used for farming. This is a just repayment for Israel's sins of sacrificing bulls to Baals and subverting worship to God. And suddenly, Jacob appears again in Hosea. Verse 12 there. This time we're told of his flight to Aram. Uh, You can read about that uh, portion of Jacob's life in Genesis 28 and 29. And after he deceitfully stole his brother's blessing, he was sent into Aram to find a wife. And there he was humiliated. He received a taste of his own medicine. The deceiver was repaid with deception. He was deceived by a man he trusted, his uncle Laban. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, and so for her hand in marriage, he served Laban for seven years. But on his wedding night, Laban deceived Jacob, and he was given Leah in marriage. He was, Jacob was forced to serve seven more years in order to gain the hand of Rachel. And through this flight to Aram, Jacob was being repaid for his deceit. He was humiliated made to serve another. And what Hosea is telling us through Jacob's life here is that repayment is coming for your deceit, Israel. Uh, Israel will be made to flee their homeland and serve another like Jacob did. Their deceit will be repaid by one they trusted. They trusted in Assyria to be their protection against military threats in the world. But in time, Assyria would turn on them, conquer them, make Israel flee their land, and make Israel serve them in exile. Verses 13 and 14 give us yet another insight into Israel's deception. They remind us that eventually the nation of Israel, right, Jacob's ancestors, went down into Egypt and yet were brought up out of bondage by a prophet of God, Moses. In his steadfast love and kindness, Yahweh continued to guard his sheep like a shepherd through the prophet Moses. Israel's salvation from Egypt and sustainment in the wilderness should have secured their commitment to the Lord. But instead, they only provoked Yahweh with their deceit and deadly violence. Such disgraceful deeds would have to be repaid. It's what justice from a holy, righteous God requires. Since there was no return, there had to be repayment. But even here, in the darkness... If we have eyes to see, I think there's light. For what God has done before, He can do again. He was able to raise children of faith from stones of a desolate nation. He, who by a prophet brought His people up out of bondage, could do it again. In fact, Moses promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that one day the Lord God would raise up a prophet like him from among His people. And though Israel had failed time and time again to listen to God's prophet, Moses promised 
that God's people would listen to this one, this last and final prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, Moses even told us that God would put his words in his mouth and that he would speak them on his behalf. We know that God has done this in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has accomplished a new exodus. Jesus is a far superior prophet than Moses. Jesus is leading his people up out of the bondage and slavery of sin and death. He came and he lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He never once deceived others. He he never once harmed them. He was never selfish. He was always perfectly giving of himself for his people. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And yet to, to our shame, but for his people's salvation, he was repaid or paid the wages of our sin in his death. He would serve as the the Passover lamb who secured the freedom of God's people from slavery to sin. As a priest, he offered his life to sacrifice, as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. The truth is, is that God has an indictment against each one of us. And if we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus has borne the judgment for our sins. We are sinners and we deserve to be paid the wages of our sin. But Jesus has ransomed our souls for God, for all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in Him. Jesus was not only the long-awaited prophet who would bear the sins and the iniquities and the payment for the sins of God's people, but He's also the long-awaited King. For three days after His sin and death, He triumphed over the grave. He, he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. He triumphed over sin and death. And now he sits there and he will come to judge the living and the dead. He will give that final retribution and repayment to all of those who will not bow their knee to him. And the only question for each one of us this morning is will we return to the Lord, believing that Jesus is our our prophet, our priest, and our king, that he's freed us from the bondage of sin and death? Or will we continue in our sin? If we continue in our sin, we will be eternally repaid for our disgraceful deeds against the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. So friend, if you're, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to come to him now in repentance and faith. Return to the Lord who made you. Escape from being repaid for your sins. God kept his word to Israel. He sent them into exile. But that exile was only a type and shadow of the eternal exile and punishment that would come to those who reject the Lord Jesus. Escape that dreadful punishment and repayment of being cast out of God's loving presence for all eternity by embracing Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, believing that he was paid the punishment that was due to your sins. Believe that in his death, he was exiled out of the land of the living for you, forsaken by God, so that you would never be forsaken by God. Return to the Lord. He is ready to receive you. And and if you're pondering the question of how is it that I can I return to the Lord, then take a look at verse 6 again. This verse fleshes out, I think, how we return to the Lord. Read Hosea 12, 12, 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Do you see how it is that we can return to the Lord? It's only by His help. Have you thought about asking Him for help? Jacob was too often doing things on his own. 
He was grasping, reaching, straining, striving, all in his own power. But even returning to the Lord takes the Lord's help. We need his help. You know, earlier in the service, we read from Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus, he confronted the church of Laodicea with being lukewarm toward him. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's been you for far too long. Maybe by the grace of the Holy Spirit, you, you don't want it to be that way anymore. Have you prayed and asked the Lord for help? Lord, give me, give me help. Help me to return to you. Maybe, maybe you feel the weight of the indictment of another church in Revelation. Maybe the Lord Jesus, like the church in Ephesus, has this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at the first. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. And then the Lord Jesus, he goes on to say, say this in the next verse, Revelation 2, 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at the first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Don't you love how the Lord Jesus is just so clear there? He says, remember therefore from where you fall and repent and do the works you did at the first. Christian, what were those things that so invigorated your heart and soul in the beginning of your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Why don't you resume them? Was it, was it reading his word, discovering new bits about him? Was it, was it fellowship with his people, having deliberate spiritual conversations with them, drawing out spiritual truth from them, praying with them, pleading with them for things that were on your heart? Was it, was it just challenging yourself to going and telling someone about Jesus? Why not return to those things that first invigorated your heart about walking with the Lord, as Jesus said? Walk with him and pray for help to do that. Let us repent. Let us return. Let us pray, Lord Jesus, help renew my first love. Hosea 12.6 urges us by the help of the Lord to hold fast to love and justice. And the ideas here are, are compassion and righteousness. And we see them beautifully displayed in our dear Savior. He was full of compassion for the weak and the weary and the wounded. He was full of compassion for people like us. And we ought to be full of compassion like Christ. Pray for God's help to put away all selfishness, to, to see the needs of those around you and to serve with compassion as our Savior has. Pray for God's help to, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Pray for God's help to, to do justice. And the idea I said here is, is, is righteousness. Pray for the help of God to do what is right and righteous. Our, our world needs us to be bearers of the truth to what is right and righteous. And our Lord has commissioned us to be that witness for him. So pray for God's help to have truth in our, our innermost beings so that there would be truth on our lips. Pray for God, for God's help to do what is right and righteous so that he might be glorified. And as we conclude, let's meditate on what it might mean for us to return to the Lord and by the grace of God to wait upon him continually. Isn't that... A, a glorious word for us. Because what it promises what? He will come. Wait upon him because he's going to come. Our, our God has disclosed here in Hosea 12 that he wants us to return to him. And that all who do will not be repaid for their sins. Still, after we have returned to him, we, we have to wait for him. This is, in many ways, the basic posture of the Christian life. Have you thought about that, Christian? 
That the basic posture of the Christian life is waiting for your God. Waiting patiently for Him. Waiting for our God is what it means to be a Christian. We're waiting for Him to sanctify us. We're waiting for Him to return. We're waiting for Him to glorify us on the last day. Maybe in the the recent days we're learning afresh that we haven't really been waiting for Him. Right? That's what Hosea tells us. He tells us, To wait continually for your God. Have there been things in recent days which have disclosed to us that we haven't been waiting for Him? Maybe we're learning afresh that we haven't really been waiting for a kingdom that is not of this world. Maybe we should pray, Lord, help me to wait for you continually. Maybe we ought to pray that the Lord would move our hearts to be in line with what Paul said in Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. May God help us to wait for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. As we wait, brothers and sisters, remember who it is we are waiting to return. Consider who it is who calls for you to return. Joseph Hart, the author of that hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. He, he described our God's call like this. He wrote, quote, When my dry, empty, barren soul is parched with thirst, God kindly bids me to come to Him and drink my fill at the fountain head. In a word, He empowers me to say, Where sin abounded, grace did much much more abound. Escape repayment and return to the God of grace. For Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power.